0: Um, So our first event today is uh, dedicated to the end of the history of, uh, to the end of the, uh, end of the history, and um, first a little remark, Uh, we're going to record this event, and I think we're also going to take some photos, so I hope that's okay with all of you. Okay, okay, fine, thanks. Okay. And, um, okay, so first the boring stuff. Uh, I would like to thank the ZIHA Beck Stiftung, the Kulturreferat, and the Bavarian Ministry of Culture and Science for their generous uh, support of this event. And of course, many thanks to the Monazenzia team, especially to Anke Büttner and Silvi Schlichter, who took care um, of the event. And uh, I would also like to thank the Café Bar Mona, which is the new cool place in town, which is hosting this event, so this is part of it. And um, and of course, I would also very much like to, I would very much uh, like to thank our guests. And I'm going, as I said, to introduce them very briefly. We're very happy that you're here. So. Next to me, we have Alex Hochuli, which I've just learned recently is a Swiss name, and I think we are all free to pronounce you in whatever way. (laughs) But I I like the Swiss pronunciation. Uh, Alex is a writer, researcher, and translator from Sao Paulo, and we're very happy that you're that you're in Europe and we got a chance to meet you tonight. Uh, He's the host of Bangercast and the co-author of the book that we're going to discuss tonight. the book was published with Zero in 2021, uh, together with George Hoare and Philip Kanliff. These are the other authors. And there's also a German edition that is published with Promedia in German, Das Ende, der Ende, uh, das, das Ende des Endes der Geschichte. I get this confused quite often today. <laughs> I would also like to say hello to the Austrian editor, Stefan, who's sitting right there. And Stefan was. So kind to bring us some books, so please uh, go and buy them after the event. Uh, that's the German the German edition. Um, then sitting next to Alex is Anton Jäger. He's a historian of political thought. He wrote a dissertation on populism and, and the democracy of uh, producers in the U.S., 1877 to 1925. And he's also... Um, Uh, engaged with public writing and he published quite a few very interesting articles which I of course recommend to all of you and the third person we we have sitting here is bernhard Pirkel, who's a, who's also a writer and he will lead us through the event bernhard will be moderating and again we're very happy to have you here thanks for coming and <coughs> um, just a very short remark on how we are going to organize the event so we're gonna have a discussion with the two authors now which will probably take about an hour and after this. Uh, we're gonna have Q&A, so please make up questions and ask as much as you want, and let's go, the stage is yours.
1: Um, I think we um, will have a short break um, after the first hour and then the Q&A. So okay, so you can, can, uh,
0: you can make up questions. Make up, quest, have, have a smoke. Nice.
1: That kind of thing. Alright, okay. In 1989, Franz Fukuyama famously proclaimed the end of history. With the collapse of the state socialist model, liberal democracy and the market economy have won the final victory over their greatest opponent, according to Fukuyama. I quote from the end of the end of history. Contemporary society came to be seen as a natural order instead of the product of a conflictual historical development. According to the authors of the end of the end of history, this era has come to an end since the financial crisis of 2007 to 2008, but at the latest since Brexit, since the election of Trump and the COVID-19 pandemic. Quote, politics are back, but in strange forms, end of quote. While the period after the end of history was characterized by what Colin Crouch termed post-politics, Quote, a form of government that tries to foreclose political contestation by emphasizing consensus, eradicating ideology and ruling through managerial technocracy. In short, a strategy of depoliticization. End of quote. The authors argue that our current moment is characterized by manifold challenges to the political establishments and the managerial approach to governing society. Quote, anti-politics, by challenging consensus, brings politics back in. For radical, emancipatory politics, anti-politics is ambivalent. On the one hand, it wedges open um, the possibility for a return to popular sovereignty. Quote, politics, in its essence, is division, is a disruption of the normal way of doing things, the fundamental presumption of equality, such that anyone could claim political authority." End of quote. Another quote. But politics is also about representation, the funneling of popular interests, desires, and dreams to agents endowed with the responsibility to translate that will into action. End of quote. And it is in this sense that the authors of The End of, the end of History see the various forms of anti-politics lacking. And Alex, if you would kindly um, just explain uh, to the audience what exactly anti-politics
2: Yes. No, I mean, you've said everything, so I, I, can, uh, I can just sit this one out. All right. Um, <laughs> it's wonderful to see all of you here. Thank you all very much for coming. I'd like to thank Bernhard for his introduction, uh, for the invitation, and to Dana, and to everyone here at the Monasencia for hosting us and what is actually a wonderful venue. Um, and thank also to Provedia, our German language publisher. Um, and I should probably <coughs> offer apologies that the co-authors, Philip and George, aren't here, but, you know, that's their loss, so um, I, I'm here, you'll have to deal with me. Um, so, as uh, Baron Harder has already hinted, if our book were to have a kind of big, dumb strap line like a lot of American publishing has, it'd be, politics is back, but it's weirder than ever. Unfortunately, um, we didn't go for anything that stupid, but um, <laughs> I, think, I think the fact is, is that to a German audience, I think selling that idea is maybe a little bit more difficult. I hope I don't offend anyone in saying that maybe German politics is a little bit more muted, maybe a little bit more boring, and so the weirdness isn't so present uh, in, in German politics. But again, when we come to questions, you can, you can say, no, absolutely, I'm wrong. Um, we can come to that. Um, but yeah, so I mean, as Bernhard already explained, the premise of the book is this idea that uh, the Francis Fukuyama period of the end of history has come to an end, which isn't to say that history has restarted. Because that would be a radically different claim and a radically bigger claim. Our point is merely that the end of history period is ending, but there hasn't been a systemic alternative to capitalism that has emerged to challenge it. But what is the case is that many of the very basic features of the period from 1990 to 2020, let's just say for those you know, <clears> think <throat> that 30 year period, are either gone or are crumbling or withering away. So we can go through a list of these items, of what characterizes the end of history. So firstly, you have the forward march of globalization, which has been halted, or in some cases has even gone into retreat. There's this really stupid theory, I don't know if you're familiar with it, that you know, no two countries with, McDonald's, with, with the McDonald's would ever go to war with one another. Um, and that obviously is nonsense, because of Russia and Ukraine. Though, I think Russia has, uh, or McDonald's has withdrawn from Russia, so maybe McDonald's aim is just to prove Putin right, or, or rather, Putin's aim is to prove this stupid theory about McDonald's uh, correct, I don't know. Um, but in any case, um, there, there's another element to globalization, or its ideological accompaniment, which would be globalism, and that has also seriously weakened. Glo- I think the best way to, to understand globalism is the way that Tony Blair put it, uh, the former British Prime Minister who saw globalization as effectively a natural force. To be against globalization is to be against the weather. You know, It's not something you can act- actively seek to change. It, politician's job is simply to adapt societies to this whirlwind of change that happens outside. And that radically diminishes the role of the politician and political action. But that is also something which has strongly withered away, um, especially if you consider the extraordinary policies that have been implemented just in the past two, three years. Neoliberalism is another key element of the end of history, and nowadays, if you were to look at neoliberalism in, in you know, 2022, from the perspective of the 1980s, I think it would be pretty unrecognizable. It's still neoliberalism, but it's really quite radically different, and perhaps we're even moving beyond neoliberalism. And at any rate, the intellectual authority of neoliberalism has completely crumpled. I don't think you find people selling uh, political ideas based on, let's introduce competition, as if it were like this grand new idea. I don't think it really has much purchase across Western societies anymore, let alone uh, in the Global South. And then finally, this idea of post-politics, which uh, Bern already mentioned, uh, which is this idea that all serious political contestation is foreclosed. um, That's gone as well. So, when we were writing the book in late 2019 and early 2020, These factors seem pretty evident to us, especially observing the scene in the U.K., in the U.S., and certain other countries. But what about Germany then? Because it's a little bit more of a difficult case, and we tried to incorporate some German examples in the book, but it wasn't always so easy. In my opinion, Germany is trying its hardest to remain in the end of history. Uh, The whole political establishment is dedicated to making sure the end of history is perpetuated. And even something like last autumn's election seems to confirm that. So you now have a much more fragmented party system, where the two main parties of centre-left and centre-right no longer account for 80% of the votes. But despite that, you don't really have any serious um, you know, contest over different ideas and different visions for society. There hasn't been a great populist challenge to have emerged, despite the fears every year around d or AFD or whatever. Um, really these parties just represent different milieus. You have the Green Party style voter and you have the CDU style voter but it doesn't really represent different interests or different ideologies. So why is Germany stuck in the end of history seemingly? And I think there's two reasons for this. The first one is probably more obvious which is that Germany uh, occupies a central role within the capitalist core that has allowed it to insulate itself to a certain extent from the turbulence faced elsewhere in southern Europe, in the US, and so on. Of course, we'll see with the energy crisis and inflation rising how long that lasts. And the second element, I think, is that Germany, and certainly West Germany, its whole trajectory since the Second World War was already post-historical, avant la lettre in a way. Uh, It was, uh, certainly as history is conceived as as wars and revolution, to put it really simply, West Germany was founded on this idea that we will never have this passed again. Um, And the elements of, for example, US strategic supervision, or the various constitutional measures that exist in Germany to prevent inflation, these are all ways of locking in politics and making sure that history never arises again. Um, And then you have the EU, which is a major factor, and especially Germany's central role in it. The EU is above all uh, the kind of avatar of the end of history. It's It's a construction whose whole premise is technocratic management and cooperation between national elites rather than necessarily cooperation between European peoples. So you have this cooperation between elites which takes the place of democratic representation and popular sovereignty. And then of course there's the fact that the EU was always a means of containing any geopolitical ambitions Germany might have. So as a friend of mine, a German friend of mine once put it, uh, Germany is all economy and no politics. Now, I've said all this as a way of kind of undermining the thesis and you're going, okay, well, why why should I buy this book then if you've just, you know, if you've said it's completely not relevant to Germany. Um, But I think there's still a case to be made and I've already indicated ways in which uh, the end of history might start to crumble in Germany too. But I think we can look across the West, across Europe and North America and beyond um, and see that the 2010s, which has been called the populist decade, um, has come to really replace post-politics, and that anti-politics has emerged as the dominant mode of political contestation. Now, anti-politics, sometimes people use it to mean depoliticization, dropping out, withdrawing from electoral participation, (coughs) party membership. We see it in a different sense. Anti-politics is more of an angry, active rejection of political establishments so you can think of anti-corruption protests which have happened across eastern europe in different places uh, across africa and south america um, very presently in brazil through through the mid part of the 2010s you can think for example of the movement of the squares uh, across southern europe where they declared they you do not represent us to the political elite and even the vote for donald trump in 2016 with his promise to drain the swamp was also a form of anti-politics a rejection of the political establishment without rallying behind a new banner, a new attempt to take power and to put something else in its place. So it has a self-defeating element, which means that nothing comes to replace um, in in the place of the rejection. Um, And this anti-politics has even been captured by mainstream politicians. So Emmanuel Macron is probably the perfect example here. You know, he combines elements of the left and the right, um, but he doesn't represent the old parties. He's no longer part of the old parties. He creates his own party with his own initials as the, you know, as the initials of the party. And he's new, unbeholden to the old political establishment, and therefore he can come in and modernize France. And so he, here you have a, a, a kind of almost a melding of post-politics and anti-politics at the very center of a major European country. So I think what's become clear is that we're now moving into a new phase of the breakdown of the end of history. So we no longer have the placid world of post-politics, where citizens withdraw from politics, happy to inhabit this democracy. And democracy, in this sense, no longer means popular power or representation, but really is this sort of postmodern habitus where we just kind of live our lives in private, go shopping, and nothing ever big ever really happens. So it's very clear, I think, to us that that anti-politics replaced post-politics in the 2010s. So what's happening now in the the past couple of years, and I hear I'm kind of advancing an argument which isn't contained in the book, but which I think is worth exploring and something Anton and I have discussed before, um, and we'll carry on this discussion tonight, Um, and it's that politics now seems to be everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And so you have an excess of political demands, a politicization of intimate life so that you're having arguments with your aunt over the dinner table about trans rights or who the president of the U.S. is or whatever it is, and it's hugely conflictual and yet somehow meaningless. It doesn't gain any traction, it doesn't lead to the creation of new organizations. So you can think, for example, of how Black Lives Matter's protests spread around the world. And people in vastly different countries were adopting the very same slogans they were using in the U.S., the very same categories they used in the U.S., irrespective of the fact that they bore absolutely no connection to the realities on the ground in those countries. And Germany actually is probably one of the worst culprits here, I think, in terms of (laughs) importing a lot of this American politics. Um, Berlin, where I was last night, we were actually discussing this in the bar afterwards, it was the, the city outside of the U.S. that held the largest Black Lives Matters protest outside the U.S. Again, with placards, in English always, denouncing white supremacy or whatever it might be, and not really tangling in any way with the specific contradictions of of German society. So, with this sense that politics has interceded into all these areas, and you can think even at an elite level, the way that, for example, something like trans rights, which was previously understood as something that would affect relatively small number of people who suffer from gender dysphoria is now the matter of ESG or corporate social responsibility initiatives from major corporations or even NATO you know so um, and that then provokes its own opposition which we now see in the form of these new culture wars that have emerged Um, and that has seemed to politicize everything everybody has an opinion on it and I think maybe you can think of examples of friends acquaintances of yours It's certainly the case for me that I have friends uh, in London where I studied who, until 2014 or something, weren't really political, weren't really interested, and whenever I was talking about politics, they were like, shut up, here's Alex talking about politics again. Now I come back and visit them, and they have opinions on absolutely everything, and feel very strongly about... Boris Johnson must be deposed, about uh, the fight against racism needs to be taken on, or that wokes are dominating everything and need to be deposed, whatever side they take, um, it's amazing that these people who had no interest in politics are now the most politicized people. And me, kind of, I I guess I care a bit about politics, um, and it's kind of like, would everyone just shut up a little bit, stop talking about (laughs) politics for a second. Um, But I don't think that the term new culture wars entirely captures what's going on because there's some very grand political demands that are actually made. So it's not just purely symbolic. There's demands made like stop drilling oil now everywhere or abolish the police, which you saw in the United States. So These were quite grand demands, but they have no real way of finding representation, channeling them to political action. So you have this sense of grand claims, which meets no real concrete form. Now, I know Anton has proposed this term hyperpolitics, and I've told him he's wrong. <laughs> um, because I don't, I don't think that's the right term. And so um, this form of politics now, which is spontaneous, everywhere and nowhere at the same time, breaks the boundaries between high and low, public and private, and is completely disintermediated, um, is, I think, something that needs a different term. And I think the way to sound really smart, if I've understood this correctly, is to find some term in Greek or Latin and use that and people <laughs> go, oh yeah, that's, that's surely serious. Um, and so, so I've, I, I'm going to give it a go here. Um, so in ancient Greece, the Aperon was defined as uh, the infinite, the unlimited, or the unbounded. And so according to uh, Anaximander's cosmology, he died in 543 BC, um, if that's relevant to you, um, you can look him up. Uh, <laughs> everything in the world originated from the Aperon, from this boundlessness, rather than from a particular element. The Apeyron is undefined and always moving, which is a little bit like our hypermediatized politics today. Nothing seems to find concrete form, it's constantly shifting, it's being sped around the world uh, at 100 miles per hour through the internet, but doesn't ever really find any determinate political form or representation. What's interesting is that this notion of the aperon uh, then gives birth to contradictory terms like hot and cold, wet and dry, and so on. And these oppositions then set into motion uh, their perpetual strife. Which I guess maybe seems a little bit like the culture wars we have today. What's interesting is that according to this cosmological vision, this separation causes the world to come into being because things start to take determinate and oppositional form. So maybe that somehow captures where we are. or Maybe you think I'm just being pretentious and should drop the the idea entirely. We can come to that afterwards. Um, But this unbounded, ever-moving, indeterminate space where political claims proliferate but find a determinate shape um, only to cleave off into opposed elements is precisely like the face-off that you have between liberals and conservatives in the culture wars. So I would propose instead of hyper-politics, Anton, uh, apparel politics. Uh, that's not apparel politics, that's what happens when we have a drink afterwards. It's, it's not, not to get confused. Um, anyway, so the question then, I think, to, to conclude, is will this moment of hyperpoliticization or apparel politics bring the world into being? Rather, whether it will succeed in bringing history back, uh, history with a capital H, back into being, into movement? Or, or what we see, is what we're seeing now really just a further degeneration? the long unwinding of 20th century organized mass politics into a new form of chaotic swirl which is unable to recognize, unable to reckon with the succession of crises and emergencies that we face seemingly permanently in the 2010s, one after the other, uh, 2020s I should say.
3: Thank you so much. So I I welcome Alex's, I mean, it's not provocation, it's just an argument about how we should describe what's happening. Um, So I propose the term hyperpolitics more as an hypothesis to clearly capture some contrasts. So people who grew up in the 1990s and the 2000s who experienced the period, now looking at the world in the 2020s, and I think the example of the friend you gave who, until 2014, was completely apolitical and actually castigated you for engaging in political debates and now as opinions and everything, it's an extremely good indicator that at least we've moved out of that world. So something has changed. I don't think we know what has exactly changed, but there's an analytical challenge there which is very real and which is striking. Now, I've been a friend of the Bunga boys as they call themselves for... <laughs> we don't call ourselves that, I think people call us that. Well, <laughs> you know, I have to go with a the, with the popular name here. That, And it's very clear that we share at least the essential diagnosis which is presented in this book, which I think gives an extremely accurate but also extremely intuitive understanding of how the world has changed in the last 30 years. And what is lovely about them is that they're the best versions of left Fukuyamas that are are actually around. So a lot of people on the left have an allergic reaction to someone like Fukuyama, partly because of his neoconservative background, partly because he's a sort of old-style modernization theorist, But there is a rational kernel to the thesis he wrote in the 1990s which is extremely important for the left and they i think offer the most convincing left-wing interpretation of what historical truth fukuyama was actually expressing in the 1990s now if you look at the 2010s which is the long sort of breakdown period there is an almost uh, unending challenge to make sure you don't fall into citations of Gramsci's interregnum, where you say that the old is dying and the new cannot be born, because it's such a cliched and overdone citation. The, Th- the whole book's an effort to avoid that, yes. basically. Yeah. So it's one big exercise in evasion to make sure that you don't have to say this <laughs> uh, Gramsci statement. And there was a recent conversation on the podcast where I think we were able to capture, or at least I was able to capture, some of the specific, uh, specificities Excuse me of what's happening in the 2020s. And if you look at the long post-history period that runs from the early 1990s to the early 2020s, uh, 2020s you can maybe see it as a patient that has gone into a comatose state and that is not even conscious as there's no sense of agency to the patient as such. Now, what happens in the 2010s is that the machines start bleeping, there's all kinds of doctors around the bed or starting to have a look at what's happening to the patient. And then at one point, the patient does wake up Suddenly there is a pang of consciousness that enters there, but the patient still can't move. So the comatose state has ended, but there's an immobilism or there's a kind of paralysis, which is very, very deep and which is very difficult to overcome. And I think this captures quite well just what we're trying to describe with hyperpolitics or um, aperiopolitics, where it is clear that something has ended, So all of the recipes and all of the modes of public engagement, which were very prevalent in the 90s and 90s and 2000s, so post-politics, neoliberalism, those strategies of depoliticization, a radical privatization of politics as well, where people didn't actually feel comfortable not having debates, but not speaking about who they were voting for, which is a striking thing if you come out of a 20th century mass politics world where. If someone was a socialist in Belgium or someone was a Christian Democrat in Belgium, you'd go to a Christian school, you'd read a socialist newspaper, or you'd even go to socialist cafes. So the boundaries between public and private when it came to politics were extremely porous. And in the 1990s and 2000s, this completely disappears. Now, if we look at the world now in the 2020s, and this is what the hyperpolitics concept is trying to capture, it's clear that that doesn't hold anymore. Politics has re-entered the private sphere. This rigid separation between public and private has been sublated. But of course, strangely enough, and this is the historical confusion we're experiencing, that has not implied a reversion or return to the modes of mass politics we know from the 20th century. So we're looking at a creature that is familiar insofar as it shows continuity with some of the post-historical forms you discussed, but which doesn't look like anything that we know from the vocabulary of 20th century political science. So the parties we look at are extremely fleeting, startup and pop-up parties. They don't have distinct rules as to who is a member and who is a non-member. With the black BLM protests also in the United States, it's a very clear example that these were the biggest protests in numerical terms in American history. Never in uh, the history of the United States had so many people been on the street for such a sustained period of time. Now, of course, what this led to in the end of 2020 was a decrease in the budget for certain police forces and, in the end, the actual trial of a police officer, which was a new historical point. If we look two years later, we see that all of the police departments in question, which lost their funding at the time, have now regained it, part as a response to a new crime wave. And this, I think, again captures the the paradoxical nature of the new type of hyperpolitics we're trying to describe, where you have intense political energy, enormous polarization, uh, contestation, and enormously ground demands about abolishing the police, about paying reparations, about completely restructuring the um, entirety of the American state. And then two years later, it is that a group of people went to a party continuously for two months, clamored for certain changes, and now it's not clear who actually participated in the protest and what kind of institutional legacy the protests um, have left behind. I think this is the central um, metaphor I want to use, where the comatose state of our patient has ended. They're looking at the world, they're experiencing things, but there is no capacity for agency and there's no capacity for political action like you had um, in the 20th century. Now, the reason I use the word hyperpolitics mainly in a more technical sense is that what you also see in the 1990s is a separation of what we call politics and policy. So politics are processes of popular will formation and representation, the ones that uh, Alex also describes in the book. It's how people get together and actually uh, form collectivities as such. While policy is about the execution or the enacting of that popular will, mainly on a state level or an institutional level. And what you have in the 1990s is a rigid separation between those two moments. So politics is relegated to the private sphere or to a media sphere that's eternally addicted to novelty while policy is essentially delegated to managerial technocracies or to unelected power in central banks. Now, what we're seeing in the 2010s, 2020s, is that this separation between politics and policy has not really come to an end. So it's not as if the moment of politics or will formation and the moment of the enactment or the execution of that will have come back together. But there is an intensification on one side of the dichotomy, where politics, as the generation of collectivities, does tend to escalate much further and tends to move out of the private sphere, as it was in the 2010s. So this is the hypothesis I'm trying to present. I'm not sure we need the word hyperpolitics for it. Maybe we'll find better terms for it. But we need to find a way of seeing a world that is definitely changing, that has moved out of a neoliberal consensus, however incoherently, that has moved out of a certain post-historical phase, But again, the end of the end of history does sadly not imply the restarting or a new begin of history itself. And I myself have used this slogan where I caution people it might take a while before history starts again, or maybe the decline of the American empire will drag us all down into the abyss anyway. Um, But this is the hybrid situation we're uh, trying to describe. This is all extremely speculative, so anyone in the room, or Alex himself, who has other intuitions on this, um, is very much welcome to give further comments. Thank you.
2: Well, I I think, firstly, to kind of um, make a rather small concrete point, but you could argue that with regard to the Black Lives Matter protests in the US, that it actually did have a concrete institutional um, consequence, which was to channel all these voters who might have previously been voters for Bernie Sanders or some type of anarchist or whatever um, into the Democratic Party. And in fact, that's one of the ironies, I think, of the moment, which is that the defeat of left populism, and I think we can pretty much clearly bookend left populism from 2015 to 2019, um, is that the, the looking back, it, for all the excitement around it, what its main effect was to channel back into the main establishment parties and try to re-energize them or in some way re-legitimate parties which were at the risk of really falling apart or becoming hollow shells, and it's very clear with the Labour Party in Britain, with the Democratic Party in the US, and Podemos uh, in Spain as well, which is now just basically supporting the, the kind of main neoliberal uh, Spanish Socialist Party. So. Um, I think that is perhaps an argument, or rather to kind of tease out what the implications of that would be, it's that that is perhaps a way, an attempt to clamp down on the emergence of politics properly and to return to post-politics. Um, which again poses problems for for the argument I'm trying to make about the end of the end of history, because there's always forces which are trying to contain it to contain it again. And I started off talking about Germany and this mm-hmm. perpetual attempt to contain the outbreak of politics. Um, and so there are factors which, you know, I, there there were moments during the pandemic. I think even when we had arguments on the podcast, and I remember uh, George, my co-host, making the argument like, no, it's all over, <laughs> you know, it's all gone back, it's all been put back in the box, everyone's at home, demobilized, so all the political energies that had existed in the 2010s have now gone back in the box. Now, I think the, the, to look on the bright side, um, things are getting worse. <laughs> so, so, the, so the turbulence that exists means that I don't think that it will congeal again into this end of history formation. Um, and certainly you wouldn't have the you know, positive endorsement of, for example, consumerism that you had in the 1990s as an avenue for people's energy, their libidinal energy, not least because that was underpinned by a huge amount of private credit, which now isn't available and rising cost of living will also challenge that. And I think it's important to think about this looking prospectively um, and to try to be you know, optimistic through the pessimism, uh, which is that we haven't dealt with, I think probably a few of us in, in this room, um, and probably for two generations, dealt with serious inflation. And that's a major political factor which we've even forgotten, you know, and politicians in many cases aren't adjusted to having to deal with that, Um, And, you know, the real sovereigns today are central banks, as as, uh, Anton already hinted at. And their um, whole goal through the neoliberal period was to tame inflation. And they succeeded and they won, in part by breaking the back of the working class, which meant that there was no longer upward pressure on wages. And now they're kind of ruling over this void. Um, And don't have the mechanisms anymore to counter inflation, because one measure, which you would traditionally do, would be to raise interest rates. But if the problem is high oil prices, high commodity prices, um, supply shortages, raising interest rates will just put a further dampener on the economy, um, and so won't promote any sort of growth whatsoever. So they're in a real bind there. Um, and I don't think they're necessarily accustomed to thinking creatively about how to deal with it, even if it's things which wouldn't be in the interest of the working class, I think even then they don't have any any creative solutions. Um, the other thing, I think, j- just briefly on um, you know the separation between politics and policy, I think that's well put. W- what I think is interesting about the hyper-politicization today, and I'm using your term <laughs> again, um, is that um, whereas, Traditionally, one would understand policy as being, in some way, subordinate to politics. That political will would be formed and then policies would then be um, kind of extracted or traced out from that. Um, So you might have a political will for a more egalitarian society and then you have policies which might be redistributed, which ensue from that. After the separation and now that they come back together, I think you have an odd situation where you have politics, but politics is subordinate to policy. So you still have policy being made um, in technocratic organizations, quangos, regulatory agencies, central banks above all, um, but you have a whole lot of politics, a whole lot of shouting effectively going on underneath that, but which finds it intractable to, to really gain a grasp over policy. And in fact, it's almost like in some of these grand demands, an unwillingness even to broach policy, to tangle with policy. because. The demands almost exceed the possibility for policy to even deal with it. Like, for example, stop drilling for all oil. Well, that's—I mean—that's not going to happen, um, or in any case, you know, would probably be would be so damaging economically in, in the immediate term as to be impossible. Um, and so there's this weird disconnect that happens with policy still kind of the wheels of policy still turning on, still turning, crisis fighting, while everyone else is kind of shouting at each other in somewhat futile fashion.
3: Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, I have three or like four uh, broad points in response, which, again, vindicate everything you said in your analysis. So I think one of the symptoms, which clearly speaks in favor of our hypothesis, is that what you saw already in the late 2010s is what you could describe as a clear nostalgia for post-history, certainly parts of the professional classes in the West, but also in the rest of the world. So the people who are most at ease with the specific settlement that was instituted in the 1990s experienced the disappearance, or at least the fracturing of that settlement, as a trauma. So the fact that you had clear enunciations of people uh, dreaming back to the Olympics or dreaming back to uh, Tony Blair's, Obama, Tony Blair's 1990s, this clearly shows that they're expressing a grievance over something that is not no longer coherently there. So that very speaks in favor of the idea that we're in post-post-history, it's just not clear that anything resembling history is actually the start. The second point about inflation is a similar thing, insofar as inflation is the expression of a certain class dynamic. So in the, throughout the 20th century, most forms of inflation have a very close connection to institutionalized or non-institutionalized forms of class conflict. They're about specific organized actors such as the working class making claims on the state and also making claims on other social actors this generates an inflation dynamic and inflation in that sense is almost an indirect expression of history because if you have these organized interests facing each other and if class struggle is the motor of history well if you see inflation then the motor is working what we now have is an inflationary world in which the working class as a cohesive social agent does no longer exist and this is why the Financial Times yesterday just said the inflation we're seeing now has nothing to do with a wage-price spiral or any of this stuff, and most of the costs of this inflation will exclusively be borne by workers because they have no bargaining power whatsoever. And this is an extremely, almost historically unprecedented situation, so far as all of the forms of inflation we're familiar with from the 20th century did have that contributing factor in wage demands made on behalf of working class. Now we have an inflationary world that is intensely destabilizing, with which the working class as a concerted social actor no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a sign of the kind of hybrid situation we're in. For what does it mean to have an inflation without an organized working class? Well, we need to invent a term for this, because otherwise we won't be able to make sense of it. The other thing which ties into the nostalgia for post history is the return of a specific type of nationalism or a sacrificial ethic in parts of the liberal elite. So the remilitarization of Europe that's currently being discussed, the idea that Germany could reintroduce something like the draft, the fact that there's all kinds of martial rhetoric um, with certain intellectuals and groups who were very much by default pacifist in the 1990s and 2000s. This shows at least that there's a certain spirit of sacrifice or a certain departure from the hedonism which was so omnipresent at the time, which again points at a hybrid situation. Because I cannot imagine Germany reintroducing a draft and loads of German youngsters signing up as if it's 1914. Um, As as John Mersheimer always says, you've never visited a German disco if you think that's going to happen. But this is, again, a sign of the hybrid situation we're in: Inflation without an organized working class. Patriotism without actual mass military mobilization. And again, nostalgia for a period that is itself the end of, uh, of history. Um, these all speak in favor of your mm-hmm. hypothesis. The question is, what terms should we be using to describe these situations?
2: Yeah. I just want to respond to that really quickly, then maybe I don't know if Bernard wants to come in. Um, the question of uh, militarization and the kind of mobilization that that implies, I think, is something that elites have a difficult time entangling with. Because of course, COVID and the the state responses to COVID, specifically the lockdown, which is something which was imitated from China, despite the fact that the WHO said such measures should never be adopted, suddenly they adopted them once China introduced them. And that was effectively a mass demobilization of society of the type that has never been seen before, other than perhaps in wartime, except that in wartime, you have actually mass mobilization because men are sent off to fight. So it's a kind of historically unique situation in which it would make sense. And I I don't want to be conspiratorial here. So I'm not saying that, you know, the lockdowns were a measure to clamp down on the kind of populist moment which was arising. But it was very convenient for elites that lockdowns showed themselves up as a potential policy um, because it did clamp down on all politics and made uh, forced to return effectively to technocracy. Politicians could hide behind experts. Um, There was no politics other than COVID politics, there was only one discussion, and in fact there wasn't really even any discussion, because opposition to it was really not, um, not really accepted, and the only opposition to these COVID policies tended to be from far right or various conspiratorial groups, anti-vaxxers and so on, which I think actually the mainstream media was all too happy to amplify. As they a had way no to, plan. exactly well as well yeah. they had no alternative plan, and just to show, look anybody who opposes this is obviously this crazy person rather than having a serious debate for example about state capacity, lack lack of hospital beds, new creative solutions which could have been made to deal with the pandemic instead of simply shutting everyone at home for a year and a half um, but where's the tangle there? Well, the, the, I think the, the problem is is that with something like militarization and introducing the draft, that in, it inherently suggests a more public form of politics in which it brings people into politics. And that's always a dangerous thing, to have masses of people together. And I think that is a, gonna be a real challenge for elites if they're thinking of doing that, um, where you're basically trying to, doing this push and pull like, yes, come out a bit more, no, no, not too much. And actually, there's a, there was a version of this um, in, in more muted form in the transition from the end of history to the end of the end of history, which was, um, as we say in the book, Through the 1990s and 2000s, politicians were desperate for people to engage in politics. There were all these get-out-the-vote campaigns, just come out and vote, it doesn't matter who for, we just need, hey, someone please listen to us, kind of uh, infuse our states with some form of legitimacy by actually participating in elections suddenly people start voting, and they vote the wrong way. And then people are like, actually, don't vote, actually. You can stay <laughs> home. Um, and I think that, that dynamic is already it captures very well what we might now be seeing um, with what you referred to in terms of mobilization and demobilization.
3: Do
1: you have anything to add? I have nothing to add to that, but um, I would like you, Alex, to, all right. Um, Tell us something about um, the the effective um, and the psychopolitical dynamics you describe in the book, mm-hmm. and maybe um, uh, let's let's just maybe talk about knobs a little bit. Yeah. Um, New Liberal Order Breakdown Syndrome. Yeah. It's just it, just in my opinion, it's just one of the most um, most um, most useful analytical tools uh, you um, develop in the book.
2: Yeah. No. So I think. I think we've already hinted at this idea yeah, yeah, yeah. of the kind of liberal establishment up, but, yeah. you know, reacting hysterically, effectively, to, some, to any form of political challenge. Um, and I'm going to make myself maybe probably unpopular with the German audience, but you know, it's, when I tell friends in Brazil that in Britain there was a referendum to leave the EU and one side won and then the other side refused to accept the result, it's like that's completely outrageous. How could they do that? No, I mean, but that's just a coup, you know, and I think in Europe, through a lot of major in Europe, it was like, well, absolutely, it's, it's the wrong idea to leave the EU. People voted against their own interests. They're stupid or racist or whatever, and the result of the referendum has to be overturned. Um, so at least from kind of friends of the Brazilian left, they were completely outraged by this. They, they might not have thought it's a good idea for Britain to leave the EU or not really have much of an opinion. But anyway, I think it's so normalized, this idea that things are changing and they need to Be put a lid on that. um, You know, we had to find a way to describe this whole set of symptoms, which um, were not just, for example, what is called the U.S. Trump derangement syndrome, which is very obvious, or Brexit derangement syndrome, but a set of responses across uh, the, you know, effectively liberal establishments and a lot of their supporters within the professional and managerial classes of, um, as we put it, an inability to accept, explain, and respond to political change and to political challenge. And this takes various forms. So Anton already mentioned the nostalgia Uh, The nostalgia for a recent past, which, for example, you might have some left liberal type who never really liked, you know, was critical of of Obama, um, thought that, you know, he started too many wars or whatever it might be, or didn't live up to his promise, thought he might be more, uh, you know, redistributive and wasn't, and then suddenly Trump comes along and Obama becomes reconstituted as this glorious figure, America's greatest ever president on par with Lincoln or whatever it might be. Um, and there's a whole set of the, these uh, these kind of psycho political uh, responses, which you don't have to um, you know be in favor of some of the populist challenges to understand that well. To understand that there was no attempt at understanding, so there was no sense that the liberal establishment could account for its own actions, which might have led to the situation that has emerged. So you have globalization was continually pushed, which will uh, rising tide which will lift all boats there Are people who end up left behind, um, and you know, growing regional inequalities, growing income inequalities, and then they turn around and say, Well, these people um, are voting for protest parties, it must be because they're racist, rather than in any way understanding that the people, the very people who were in charge, were responsible for creating the world that we live in. They somehow write themselves out of the story, um, and there's always, I think, that kind of this bizarre thing where a lot of the liberal establishment come, tries to see itself as a minority, as somehow their backs to the wall, honest people who are just trying their best, faced against a, a right wing who, which is vicious um, and power hungry and whatever, ignoring the fact that they actually are culturally hegemonic and often in actual power and are a party of government, as is the case with US Democrats. Um, so I think that's... that's
4: um, conspiratorial.
2: And the conspiratorial angle as well, right. So then the other ways that they reach for means to explain what is going on again, writing themselves out of the story is conspiracy, right? So the only way people could have voted for Brexit or for Trump, for example, to take the kind of classic examples of the end of the end of history, is because you know Putin somehow wormed, wormed his way into their brains with bots and convinced them to vote against their own interests. And so things which were previously understood, I mean conspiracy theories, are traditionally understood as a way of, for outsiders to make sense of the world by attributing agency to some powerful agent up there, a powerful powerful cabal that controls everything. Really, conspiracy theories are a form of agency panic, a sense of your own lack of agency. And then you project that your own sense of lack of agency in negative form to something else, which is, is seen to be the super agent, which is able to control everything. Except now it's the very people at the very centers of power, the insiders par excellence, who are uh, proliferating conspiracy theories as a way to explain the fact that they have lost legitimacy. And that they don't have much support and I think that's just an absolutely crazy situation Um, and it's to a certain extent even been been normalized Um, and so the the sort of hysteria you know I think the the establishment tries to portray um, irrational hysterical politics as something that emerges from the masses because the masses are irresponsible they don't know their own interests uh, they're probably racist fascist whatever else it might be when in fact to the extent that um, you know some sort of irrational attitudes are displayed in politics, it's merely a reflection of something that the elites have started, and they've kind of instantiated and initiated this form of hysterical politics.
5: Okay, and
0: we have another 30 minutes for Q and A. And please feel also free to ask in German, Perfectly fine, both speakers sort of understand yeah. if not we're going to help with the translation. We're very excited to hear your questions. I think Bern is going to collect them. Sure. And
1: Show of hands, please.
0: <laughs> in German, English, or Greek?
3: Not, not in Greek. <laughs> If you have questions,
6: you can start Oh, yeah. Um, and this kind of kinds of discussions I always circled back around to the same question, kind of. Uh, so um, obviously, politics is kind of not the really starting, but it's the end of the end, sure. Uh, but it's with new sub- subjectivity. It's with the subjectivity that's neoliberalized, to use this big term, um, and it's also uh, neoliberal identities on which it's on which it's based. So before there was there were identities or communities already in the world, like the workers' movement, which kind of formed an identity but which tried to supersede itself. Um, step by okay, English. But these new kinds of identities, they don't try to supersede themselves. Um, So Mm -hmm. is it Mm -hmm. possible that in this moment there uh, can be a reproduction of of another non-neoliberal identity? Mm.
4: (laughs) That's a good question.
1: I think there was another one. another question, oh yeah, back there. No, well,
7: Answer first, or do we collect? Questions. Oh, we're collecting, we're, we're collecting, okay, we're yeah. collecting yeah. a bit, yeah. Okay. Go ahead. Well, first, thank you very much for your intriguing analysis, I really like it, especially the idea of hyper politics or the after the run of um Yeah, this could be a big field of discussion, but um, my question leads a bit in this direction, less in the question of identity, but rather in the question of uh, the creation of that subject, mm-hmm. of the political subject. How does uh, this idea start, and uh, and uh, uh, in how far does this uh, question lead us to 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 to, the, uh, to an idea of okay, uh, how is a subject created as a or political entity, an identity? Um, so First question the other question uh, would be well the analysis is as i said uh, very intriguing but uh, yeah what, what, so what now at the end of the end um, is there is there um uh, something like an imperative or 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 a surplus of this analysis that that gives us an idea and um not not a political program, but, but but the epistemological issue. So maybe um, uh, going back to this idea of, of, of uh, the creation of the subject, um, Can you can you can you can you uh, take something out of this analysis that, that gives um, um, maybe an uh, idea of of uh, solution, something too programmatic, but but something that uh, hope is also the, 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 the not, not the, the right concept of the, yeah, maybe you,
8: have, you, you can see what I mean. Yeah, I think also, also gone a bit in the same direction. Um, like the speaker said, there there seems to be um, a surge in this kind of politic of uh, recognition, as as one says. And then the question, recognition of a subject, by other subjects. Um, and then the question is always rec- recognized by whom? And I think um, um, the, the, the uh, a key term for me in your discussion was political agency. And I think that's, that is one of the, one of the actual key ter- or problematic terms. Because um, in this culture war that you, wars that you described or in this uh, discussion that are not about even material change uh, or policy, direct policy changes, uh, there often seems to be um, a master that the discourse addresses. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is famous uh, speech of Lacan, uh, in which uh, a French student comes up uh, and tries to uh, tries to politicize the audience, uh, and Lacan kind of dismisses him by saying, "What you seek is a new master." Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the key questions would be, um, why are people seeking a new master? And it seems to be uh, around every cultural. Uh, discussion mm-hmm. that there seems to be someone to address, so that this addressed subject or entity mm-hmm. uh, may push down this or this uh, policy road uh, and do the things uh, the clientele wants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it is um, re re a um, uh, 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 task of a re-emerging political agency uh, to get free of this addressing a master? Yep. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Did we even have a question over there?
9: Ja, ähm, also äh, vielen Dank für den Vortrag. Ich fand es sehr schön, äh, als ich auch das Buch gelesen habe, ähm, die Idee, das Ende der Geschichte zu historisieren. Ähm, aber zugleich habe ich mir dann die Frage gestellt, was eigentlich das, der Rahmen, ähm, also die Historisierung, ähm, natürlich, äh, was eigentlich den Rahmen dann zusammenhält. Und da wäre meine Frage, ob man nicht gar noch stärker weil hmm. ich
1: glaube, dass da eben so eine strukturelle Autorität zwischen der politischen Ökonomie, die dann der Ausdruck der um, Klassenkonflikte ist und die sich dann eben also die Politik die yeah. so, the, the, the question was, or was rather more of a comment, right? Or, yeah. or yeah. at uh, 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 um, this the comment was that um, he um, applauded uh, the task of historicization of the end of history, but uh, but there's a lack of um, connection with the political economy which happened in exactly that period. Is that is that is that, is that roughly correct? Yeah, like that was like
9: one one point. that like when you have the frame of historicization, uh, that the frame of the historicization. In my opinion, it should be the political economy which um, Mm determines the politics. And then you can, like, the politics is um, an expression out of these conflicts which are behind and which are not, um, which you don't see um, that obviously. um, Because, like, it's the same point um, when you have, like, um, the demonstrations against um, the technocracy. Um, you don't see the the uh, process building of, of the, the technology, so um, and behind that there are interests uh, which are also awesome, not uh, that obvious. So mm-hmm. that was the point, which I think um, the the aspect of the political economy should probably be more emphasized.
2: Mm. You go first. Yeah. Um. Okay, so there, I mean, there's three questions I guess, which related to subjectivity, so I'll try to respond to that first of all. Um, I'm slightly skeptical of those takes which see somehow that we're in some intractable um, situation of individualization and atomization, uh, where the, this, you know that effectively the type of subjectivity we have today makes politics impossible. Um, I think ultimately. There is a turn towards individual solutions and a demoralisation that happens, which is a rational response to the lack of alternatives. Um, now, of course, there's a lot of cynicism there as well, so that it's not simply a matter of turning up and making big promises that you know, hey, let's have a revolution, or you know, we'll we'll double your wages or whatever it might be, because there's a, a, a real credibility gap there in terms of being able to make political promises and be believed, um, and that's also, in a way, a rational response because of the uh, succession of disappointments that citizens have faced over the past 30, 40 years. Um, And I think, though, I think one thing, one element, I guess, of what would be called neoliberal subjectivity, which I think is a little bit more difficult to tangle with, is this notion that, and, and it's a contradictory one, that autonomy is in some ways greatly prized today. And we can see this in the world of work. People increasingly want to be their own boss, be an entrepreneur, Um, you know, the classic neoliberal formulation of being an entrepreneur of the self. I think this is clear, not just on social media, but, you know, preferring perhaps to be an Uber driver than something else because, hey, I can set my own hours. I know it's terrible pay. I know I have to work for 12 hours a day, but somehow there's still an appeal there. And I think one can see that manifest in politics too, where, the desire for spontaneous pop-up politics, where there's very low cost of entry and no cost to exit, is also there. And the idea of commitment um, is pretty anathema to a lot of people um, because you don't want to have to be paying, you know, dues to the party of X amount per month, um, and then be. It's stuck in a party where you disagree with people and you find that I'd rather just drop out rather than try to win people over. And I think that is really intractable, and I think that's very difficult. There's a positive side to it, which is that desire for autonomy, perhaps, um, does speak to a desire for freedom. Um, but it seems to only manifest itself today in a desire to drop out, whether to drop out of the labor market or to drop out of... Uh, formal forms of employment in large companies of whatever it might be in which you can form both bonds of solidarity with your fellow workers or indeed um, politically as well Um, and so this there's a sort of anti hierarchical bias and here's the contradiction because I think we live in incredibly democratic times in which any claim to authority any claim to dominance or to uh, you know some inherited form of hierarchy or whatever it might be are rejected outright i don't th- you know there's only a very small body of the population which are quite reactionary which would accept that which looks to you know to actually no i want a real master to dominate me that that's still you know a, a, maybe t- 20% at the most of, of most western societies um, and so, this great democratic spirit, which I think is a, in some ways a, a product of neoliberalism, but is anyway, it can be seen in terms of you know, some actual progress that has been achieved, um, sits in somehow in contradiction with the possibility to actually forge uh, larger bodies of people democratically acting together. Um, And I don't have a a clear answer to that, but I think to try to find the element of, the sort of positive element in that is that desire for autonomy that people have. And so I think a lot of left-wing politics tries to return to the post-war settlement, to return to Keynesian Fordism, to have greater redistribution. And again, that encounters the problem that you're, that the, the, the credibility problem, that it's basically politicians coming along and saying, hey, we're gonna give you something. And maybe people don't want to be given something. I don't know, I mean, I mean this is speculative, but I think what there is there is a de- desire for autonomy, for self-determination. And so I think this is a moment at least for the possibility of saying, you know, w- whether it's claims for popular sovereignty, um, for different forms of autonomy to not be um, constantly regulated by the state, for example, um, that it perhaps does present an ab- avenue for progressive or radical politics. Uh, which is perhaps underexplored by the left because it tends to rely back on on uh, you know on on redistribution effectively, um, which seems to not have many buyers. Um, and I think so. To and to to kind of conclude that thought. Um, the need for recognition, <coughs> recognition by the big other somehow, or this master, um, which is a facet of identity politics, undoubtedly, and it's all forms of identity. You know, it, it, it seems like the main political question today is not where are we going, but who are we? And, and following on from who are we, it is we are here, please recognize me, we're here. And it's even clearer, I think in some forms of, I think even some of the working class vote for Trump took that form as well. Hey, we're here, don't forget about us, and we can piss you off, we can, you know, poke you in the eye, Um, we still have some form of leverage, some form of power. Um, But it still remains trapped in the logic of identity, not of a transcendence of the subject to to form a new collective subject, but really, I am what I am here, please recognize me. Um, And that's... And that's very tricky. Maybe uh, Anton has a solution to no, it. No,
3: what I'm going to say <laughs> is
2: completely complementary to what
3: uh, Alex has said. So I'm just trying to tie together all the questions. So I think if you read the book, and certainly some of the other things the authors have written, the way they historicize post-history, the way they historicize the passage into post-history, is very much a materialist explanation. Or at least there's not a sort of most coherent theory, but at least they hint that is there are drivers within the political economy mainly of the 1970s and the 1980s, which now a really rich literature exists about, Whereas precisely the working class or the last stand of the working class at the time, which is a driver of inflation, which uh, faces a capitalism that is stagnating, in which growth rates are plummeting, and then the only solution to stabilize capitalism is break the backbone of this class actor. And that's what really leads to the post-historical period. So post-history is not the sort of metaphysical process that protrudes itself, it's a very concrete political struggle which takes place around the 1970s, 1980s, which is about the making of promises, both in the East and the West, and it's precise because capital reasserts its dominance not over investment, but over society, and wins that battle. That post-history is built on uh, a working class that doesn't die, but that is killed, like
5: actively. Yeah.
3: yeah. So I think it is an active political process which has structural drivers. Insofar as you can only understand the passage to posthistory through this political economy angle, because otherwise you just
2: end up with pseudo Hegelian metaphysics. Yeah, and 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 to just take that thought on, or to extend it into you know further into time, is that you know elites rule over a void once the working class is defeated, its organizations are uh, completely hollowed out, and the basis of legitimacy then, one, is no longer so much under threat during the end of history, and two, is extended primarily through debt, you know, so the idea of buying time constantly. And that's what's underpinned the legitimacy. And this is why I return to the question of inflation now and to rising cost of living, because those tools now aren't there anymore. And that's what will, especially if, you know, the conception of the citizen is really one of being a consumer. Through the end of history, well, if that consumer can no longer consume in the way that they were able to, whether whether through rising wages, which now hasn't been the case for 40 years, or through uh, rising private debt, uh, then where does it go? And then if prices are rising, that really does create a shock. So I think. You know, I don't want to be—I don't want to be catastrophist, or to say that suddenly things are going to get worse and the workers will suddenly rise up, um, which is the sort of standard left response, and and tends not to be historically the case. Uh, in fact, uprisings tend to happen when there's when there's uh, rising expectations, which are then confounded, and we obviously know the whole, this whole period has not featured rising expectations. Anyway, so I don't want to do that kind of standard lefty answer, but I do think it's something very serious to grapple with and that we're not entirely intellectually prepared for what might happen. And just to add, if you read the structural drivers of post-history as
3: originating in those imperatives that come out of political economy, you can also tell a different story about the individualization we're talking about, less as a sort of individual pathology and that people can't escape this neoliberal, neoliberal subjectivity in a hegemonic sense, or because they've been manipulated into thinking about their issues individually. It's just because we live in an era of such spectacularly lopsided class power, as Adam says it, because capital's reign is so unlimited in many ways. This leads to a, a mentality of resignation, and resignation leads to individualization. So whether you're going to buy crypto or you're just going to buy, uh, speculate on the labor market, it's a rational risk calculus you're making as you're facing insanely difficult odds on the labor market that's completely arranged and organized in the favor of capital. And if people still have a desire for autonomy and agency, which is very obvious, the only avenues are either to become a sort of speculator or a rentier yourself, or there are other forms of identities that then become available. Some of them are minoritarian, so you decide to identify with a minority group which has certain historical wrongs inflicted on them, and in a paternal way you then appeal to a master to say, since we experienced this historical wrong, we deserve reparations, or we do this. Or there's a majoritarian strategy, which is just the people, which is exactly the populist period we're describing, where the implicit subject of every capitalist democracy since the 19th century has been the people. What happens in the 20th century is that the people become sociologically more concrete in something like party democracy, where the socialists have their own version of the people, the Christian Democrats have their own version of the people, the liberals do, but once on this challenge of the 1970s, you wipe away party democracy as a mediator, the people is the only subject left, or some of these minority subjects. And then the story should be, what kind of proposal or what kind of organizational plan is there to convince people of your risk calculus and say, you want autonomy, here's a different way of getting it that doesn't involve buying crypto, uh, going on the internet and signing a petition, shit posting on Facebook. Or if you're a politician now, marching in climate marches against climate change, when people are like, but you're a politician, you're in charge, so what are you doing at the climate march? If, <laughs> if you're actually making the policy for the green transition, this is and, like an
2: application of agency that's spectacular. And, and it's an application of authority, which is, yeah, I think, yeah, what, is, what yeah. is fundamental here. And to, to return to your question, the I think fundamental political task today, and it, this, it's easy to put in abstract terms, far more difficult to put it into concrete form, but it's to reconstitute authority and to be willing ourselves to claim authority for ourselves, which has almost been sort of taboo, and it's been taboo in part because elites themselves uh, wash their hands of their own authority. And I think the example that Anton gives is perfect. These people are in charge, supposedly, right, um, and then go petitioning some other to take action. Who are you appealing? Who are you like, who addressing? Who you <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> look, look in the mirror, literally. <laughs> Um, And so I think that need to reconstitute authority, um, at least we should be hopeful in one element of it, which is, and to return to the question and to tie that together with the question of commitment, because I think there is, at the same time as this desire for autonomy, which often resolves itself into individualistic solutions, a desire for a social project. People feel quite intimately, I think you would all agree, a lack of social purpose, the sense of drift, a kind of lack of real meaning to life. And when there is a moment, and this is why emergency politics has such an appeal, which is, I think, a problematic development, but I think it does shed a light on something. Emergency politics engages us all and demands some new form of action. And it's why so many people went along with COVID lockdowns, for example, and a lot of the compliance there, even if it sometimes didn't make a lot of sense, or you weren't sure of the purpose of it, or it was contrary even to your own interests or desire to be out and socialize with friends, is because it felt like a common... Uh, project. And I think there is a, a genuine desire for that. And it, that hasn't yet found a proper outlet. But I think that's something that we can take some heart from. And I think
3: left populism also showcases this. Yeah. like Despite its faults and despite the fact that it was not able to actually consolidate its power, left populism at least gave us a sense that there's an appetite for something radical among interesting sections of the population. Where, like, wow, people are willing to take a gamble. They're willing to vote on candidates which were considered completely um, uh, beyond the pale a couple of 10 years ago. And that actually shows that there is an appetite for autonomy, which is worth taking seriously, which shouldn't be denigrated. It's just what kind of calculus are people making when they express this desire for autonomy? And unfortunately, given the way society is organized now, it can mostly only organize itself, or express itself, rather, in the safest way on an individual level.
0: Do we have more questions? another uh, round of questions, sorry.
4: <lacht>
1: ja. Ja. Ah, bitte laut. Okay. Und nicht zu lang, bitte. Ja, ähm,
8: wenn allen eigentlich klar ist, wahrscheinlich der Morgen, dass die politische Macht nicht mehr dass die, ist, die
9: Liberierten,
6: die sind, die möglichen im sind, dann könnte man ja Die Marktkonsumers nutzen, um die
9: Unternehmen dazu zu bringen, also die Lobby zu nutzen, dazu, die Unternehmen dazu zu bringen, seine politischen Ziele zu erfüllen. Ich meine, die Top Ten Unternehmen heute sind ja alles Unternehmen, die keine Sachen produzieren, die irgendeinen Sinn haben für die Menschen. YouTube, Facebook
3: so um, yeah, you you summarize it.
1: all right yeah uh, the the the, quest, the question is um, why don't we deal with this impasse of um, having um, no access to, to real power by organizing us as as, as as consumer as, as, as ethical, ethical consumers. consumers. We can say free uh, Assange, not to the government, just say to Facebook and what about Facebook, and it was
6: a big movement. All about
9: Facebook, just for months they go, they couldn't
1: go down. Um, which is probably to which Alex probably will say, read, read 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 a, read a book about uh, about the end of history. Um, <laughs> Era, right? Maybe it's Which is because yeah, because no, that's yeah, precisely what.
2: Yeah, I I mean I I have it kind of you know. I, I hate the term ethical consumption and I hate ethical consumption, so I should say that for starters. But if, if you can maybe reconceptualize in a different way, I think it's possible for there to be in some sense, of, you know, some form of consumer collectivity, which acts as an agent, a real sort of economic agent um, to, co- to fight for lower energy prices, for example, which might be something and then develops into something which might demand. Develop into demand for build out of nuclear power, which hey, Germany, that would be a good idea, by the way. Um, you know, you don't have to import gas or burn a bunch of coal instead. So you know, nuclear power is a good a good solution. Um, but it, in term, phrasing it in ethical terms, I think is is deeply problematic, um, not least because that is the ruling ideology. You know, I the question is saw... also about doing it individually.
3: Right, okay. so, like consumer activism on an individual level that then aggregates itself. Into I, yeah,
2: but I, I think then that precisely lacks the moment in which social bonds are created and people meet face to face. So you, they might act individually, you might uh, be capable of exercising some leverage through a consumer cooperative, but without it being a collective movement, um, it doesn't lead to the development of a collective subject or change that subject themselves. It's still you at home wanting your Amazon delivery to come faster or whatever it might be, right? Or Facebook maybe not to steal your data. Um, but the, the problem with ethical consumption, there's a great, a great terrible uh, example which I read the other day, which was a, a, a something called like No Evil Foods, which is an American company which sells vegan, uh, vegan foods, right? And this is just a great example of what ethics now means, right? Um, they, they told their employees, don't listen to these old white guys who are trying to unionize the company because they're probably all racist, right? You don't want to listen to these old white guys. And actually, if you did join a union, you'd be like those type of people. And what would happen is that that would really run against everything that we're trying to do here and trying to be an ethical company that cares for the planet and cares for people and blah, 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 blah. So. If there was any doubt in the, 19, in the 1990s and t- 2000s when there was a lot of talk about ethical consumerism, today we should be under no doubt. It is a weapon used by the ruling class against the working class. So um, I, I don't think we can, we can shy away from that truth anymore.
3: Yeah, I, I just want to add that we don't have to deny that there are certain avenues for agency which lie within this approach. So this like scholar Michel Ferre has written a book about like weaponizing your power as a debtor, or for example, rent strikes is another example. So not exercising agency qua workers, but looking at some of these new structural positions which are there in the economy and actually using them. The issue is, to me, always one of discipline. So what is specific about, to me politics is just discipline, I don't think it is anything else. Um, and what kind of discipline is possible within that type of context. And I think something like cancel culture or the way the online world works shows that you can exercise a a certain form of collective power online but what is most suitable for is just the policing and the exclusion of uh, people within your social sphere. That's what it mostly does, partly also because the margin of success is so much higher for some of these other challenges. So, if you actually want to change, like investment patterns in the coal industry or even in um, in, in climate matters in general, individual consumer decisions have a very, very limited reach. Yes. So, yeah. and then and then the question becomes so. They're already asking you to tone down or tell your teenagers to not have showers, to save Ukraine, and all this kind of stuff. And it's very clear that this does not hurt Putin at all in any way, and the limits are just extremely palpable. There's one specific point from the left which I think should always be taken into account, and this is the point Friedrich Engels made time and time again, where he said there is a de facto asymmetry between the working class and capital within a capitalist society insofar as capitalist society by default favors capital because it's society which is ordered to its needs. So he always said, capital is already organized and it doesn't need that much organization to get what it wants. The employing class can unite itself in certain organizations to push demands, but it has enough structural power of society to make what happens. In the case of an individualized labor force, that's not at all the case. You don't have that type of structural power because you're just not in the same position. And that means the disciplinary boundary you have to cross is much, much higher and this makes it far more difficult to actually get what you want, uh, unlike your antagonist in this fight. Um, we have two more questions.
0: Mine, mine will be the last one.
4: You want to do the last yeah, one? Yeah, yeah. Um I have a question about what role you would ascribe to theory. Because I mean, if you're talking about a subject I and mean, you were talking about the working class, for Marx, and for a Marxist tradition it was completely clear from the beginning that the working class is not just something that is out there, Mm -hmm. but it's also a theoretical construct that you have to construct um, through the analysis of the categories that are around. If you don't have a concept of, for example, abstract labor, or the right concept of value, you don't have a concept of exploitation, and then you don't have a concept of the working class. what would be, I mean, what do you say, it's it's already written in the Bible and the working class is there? Mm-hmm. Or would you say that the role the of theory or possessions theory, as it's called, um, is still uh, um, I don't know, a, a question mark that has to be, that mm-hmm. has to be solved. So.
0: Okay, um. Yeah, the, the the question that I want to ask is, is sort of dumb actually, but I'm I'm still gonna ask yeah. it uh, because everything that you're saying is like is, 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 I find it very enlightening, but it's it's it's, it's sort of depressing. And <laughs> and I'm referring to the to the very end of your book, so I'm wondering, is there any hope for? <laughs>
2: <laughs> I thought I already I thought I already made some hopeful statements. No, no, you did. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you go ahead. Um, no, I mean, I, I made the point first of all about the desire for social purpose, right, and the desire right. to be linked into something. Um, and the problem is that we're waiting for some authority, some daddy, to tell us what we're going to do. But even even daddy isn't daddy anymore, effectively. So that that is something that confronts us. And you know, to extend this metaphor far beyond its use, we should all become daddy collectively. Um, don't quote me on that; it's terrible. Um, <laughs> the um. So I think you know, that, that's one positive element. The other, where we concluded the book, because you, you make reference to this, is um, you know, this discourse of essential workers. I mean, I don't know if this was so present in Germany yet. Um, that, that might have turned some attention, and it seemed too briefly, to what actually makes the economy run, uh, to logistics workers, health workers, uh, people who work in uh, supermarkets, whatever—all the basic things that make um, society function—and not all the bureaucrats and, and all the and financiers and the rest—that um, seemed to briefly bear some fruit when you had a tighter labor market, uh, especially in the U.S., and you saw people quitting their jobs, which were terribly paid, uh, you know, very kind of oppressive, too fast-paced, etc. Especially working in kitchens, and decided to go do something else. That seems to have evaporated a little bit, and all that talk of the Great Resignation, I think, has died down somewhat. So I don't know if that's still something to be hopeful for. Um, That was us trying to be hopeful at the end of the book. but um, yeah, I think I think it, it remains to be seen because I don't think th- there was a possibility for the subject to be created of the essential worker that could then be filled, mm-hmm. um, which then would you know, require maybe some theorization of what that actually means, not to dispense with Marxist theory, but in some way theory has to chase reality, not the other way around. Um, and so that might have been some moment. Maybe it's passed. I don't know. Um, I think I think we'll we'll still have to wait and see. Um, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to do something positive, but that doesn't sound like happy clappy. But I think, um, I think we'll have to leave that there.
3: Yeah, I'll, I'll just conclude that I think at least you all, as good Marxists, would agree that there's an essential role that comes to theory. And that maybe there's a question, maybe we should be doing the right type of theory to see that as a metaphysical entity, the working class is not simply out there. So you need a specific scientific approach to actually discover why. Uh, Marx discovered this agent of negativity in something like the working class, which is very tightly tied to a specific analysis of capitalist society, which means that at least intellectually, that imposes a task on us where, what does it mean to start thinking about the subject that is out there or that could be out there? But that is, in many ways, like a theoretical task that can't just be done through like spontaneous invocations of a, of a sort of revolutionary eruption that won't come, won't come out of nothing. Um, and then. The, the question about the hopefulness, I think there's this beautiful saying by Mark Svorkheimer who said, I think, to Adorno, where like, I don't think things will turn out well, but the idea that they might is very important. And <laughs> I, this is, I think this is the approach that many of you take in the book as well, where this is.
2: Yeah, no, and I, I think just to add one final thing to that as well is that I think this is, for all that. The world seems increasingly chaotic, and uh, politics now seems configured by a a conflict between different forms of emergency politics on left and right. Everybody has their own form of emergency politics as a way to try to break through the impasse, but I think it actually tends to perpetuate uh, the impasse rather than get past it. So, you know, to return to, to theory, I think this might actually be a good moment. Uh, to think. It's a point that Slavon Žižek always makes. Um, But I think it's right that rather than chasing the next electoral cycle, trying to find a way to make a little bit of a difference, this would be a good moment to stop and reflect. And I think it's important to remember, don't panic. Things are much worse than you think they are. (laughs) (laughs) All right. uh, I'd say
1: if there are more questions, uh, we can do them in a more more casual setting with Mm -hmm. drinks.